I'm your host, Kimberly Bailey, and I'm here with my other amazing co-host, Erin Callahan, and we are talking about first responder and veteran mental health. I'm so excited for this week, Kim. Um, we have a very special guest and someone who's very near and dear to my heart. Um, we have Miss Jean Trescott, and she's here to share with us her experiences in the military and also um, talk about our topic today, which is resiliency. But first, R&R. Hey, Jean, uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what is your self-care tip? Mm, well, about myself, um, I'm probably of the age of both of you added together. I just turned 75, um, although it doesn't feel, I look around and say, who are they talking about? I'm not really that old, but yes, indeed <laughs> I am. Um, and I spent uh, my youth in the military and that my dad was active duty and we moved all over the country and the world and went to four high schools in four years. And, you know, the usual things for a military brat. And then I went to nursing school, um, compliments of the Army, uh, in, in exchange for a four-year enlistment, which I thought was at least the, as long as the end of my life, you know, four years. Um, and yet I ended up staying for 21 years. So wow, again, I moved a lot and I was involved in a number of different things. I did go to Vietnam for a year, um, 365 days and, uh, um, had lots of experiences that I couldn't have had anywhere else. Um, and I have absolutely no regrets. It was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And the people I met were just stellar, good people. That's um, amazing. You just, you just summed it up like, like a, a summer camp or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure that's exactly like a summer camp, but, um, you know, any experience is is a result of people that you're with. That's my that's been my experience. And um, even though there are places which I would have preferred not to be, um, when you go back and take those apart, it's usually because of a particular person. Mm -hmm. You know that you didn't really wasn't really your your kind of person or there was something about that person you'd rather not have been involved with or whatever. Yeah. But, um, well, nonetheless, before we get into the nitty gritty, as our listeners are hopefully, um, enjoying our podcast and settling in, um, can you share with us what your R and R tip would be? Well, my, my very first tip or for myself would always be to, um, look at what's going on in my life in terms of am I sleep deprived um I'm a nurse I've worked shifts for much of my life I've raised three children um and the bottom line is that oftentimes I'm sleep deprived so it's important for me to make sure that I've addressed that before I take on anything else in terms of an intervention or a change or a, a, labeling something an issue um, when in fact it may not be um, so that's my first thing uh, and then after that I look at the situation itself and what 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 are the components of the situation um, and where do they where do they come from it, you know what 
what are the different variables? Um, because so often um, you can have a situation that's per perfectly benign and one person says one thing that's that doesn't fit right for you and you can you can turn that whole thing into, into a negative experience so it's important to look at exactly what it is that, that went on in the exchange you know was it verbal was it nonverbal you know was it um, you know exactly what are the components uh, before you, again, before you um, label something in a negative way. Um, How do you know if you're sleep deprived? Like what symptoms do you notice that make you go, oh, hold on, maybe I just need to take a nap? Well, that's, that's about, really, it's a pretty good description here. And it is, um, if I, if I kind of toss the variables in the air and, and, and start saying, whatever it was you just said about, you know, oh, hold on. Um, that would tell me that it's, there's a possibility that, that there's something else going on here um, and that maybe I had to look at that in a different light. And yeah. I guess that would be, that would be the, the primary thing is just to, to look, at, look at what the situation is and um, uh, try to identify... Um, is this the way I would usually behave? Mm -hmm. Is the is the exchange with someone that I know or don't know, um, and is that is their behavior what I would have expected um, before I get into the the you know the nitty gritty of the behaviors? Um, that's what I would look at. Is is does this does this feel normal, or is this you know is this bizarre in some way yeah you know you never know until you look at it yeah so. I totally agree I for me I think when I, I know that I'm sleep deprived well I don't sleep much at all I think that's every single week it's, that somebody talks about their self-care tip <laughs> and I'm like I need to do that <laughs> it was exercise last time and now it's sleep I'm like I think my guests are speaking to me because I don't sleep enough right. but I know I start getting really irritated when I haven't slept. And I think she, you also mentioned, you know, just being able to be self-aware of your own triggers because a lot of us in the military, I was prior military as well. Um, and I think just knowing your triggers and knowing um, what's going to irritate you and then being able to recognize that. So if you're feeling that you might can ask yourself, Hey, I think I might need to take a nap. <laughs> like Aaron said, um, or just get, a bit, get more sleep I think eight hours of sleep or ten hours of sleep or whatever yeah. you know whatever works for you but that, that's really good advice thank you yeah, yeah. I think it's important it, it certainly is and I've always been a napper my dad was a napper he he at, at least napped once a day <laughs> and I adopted uh, that and I, I don't hate it at all I mean I don't need it necessarily I sleep quite a bit but um some people do get by on just like three hours, four hours. I'm like, what? But I, I remember being pregnant and sleep deprived. And I thought I could, I got so angry one time. I thought I could just rip the comforter right down the middle because I was just so, so pissed off. And yeah. I, I always say my brain feels like mashed potatoes whenever, whenever I get to that ultimate confusion state. Well, and you said something that I, that, we ought to put a pin in, and that's um, just because you got by doesn't mean that it was okay. Mm -hmm. You can you can get by and manage, and still in the back of your brain be thinking, "Oh, not good here. This is, you could have done things a little better. Sleep wouldn't have hurt here in this situation. It would have been a a, a good first step." So, and I think that's important too, is not to not to always accept what you may have when you know that it's, uh, that it's not the best you can do. Yeah, that's an excellent point. 
Absolutely. I totally agree. And so I'm really interested to hear more. And when you were telling the little brief synopsis of your, your story, I'm like, like I was with right there with Aaron, like, wow, that's a lot to cram into such a short little bio. You did a really good job. Um, but I'm really interested to hear about how you were able to, to not be sleep deprived and be in nursing school while you were in the service. I, I'm, I'm a medic. So I, I was a medic in the army. Uh, what branch of service were you in? I don't think you mentioned army. that. Army. Oh, you were army too. Yay. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how did you manage going to nursing school and being in the service? And then you said you also had a year long time in Vietnam. Could you tell us more about well, that? I, I was in college and during, at that point in time, you could, um, uh, you could join the, the military and, be funded for college for either a year or two years. Um, so when I was going to school, I, I was on active duty, but I wasn't going to work for standing formations or any of that stuff. I, it was paper only. Um, and then when I graduated, I went to um, equivalent of basic and um, then went on, actually went on active duty. I reported for my first duty station on New Year's Eve party quite, yeah quite a party I told Aaron a funny story and I'll, I'll tell you as well as you know uh, for anybody who's spent any time in the military it's the basic for medics and and certainly for nurses is not the same as it is for um, soldiers but when we reported that that night we were we were told that there would be a reception uh, the commanding officer was going to hold a reception and we would be present in uniform the next day. Well, we had no clue what that meant other than we better do what we were told. <laughs> and it turned out we had one uniform. There were five of us lieutenants that were being told to come to this formation. And none of us, we had one uniform with five of us. Because we just got there. We hadn't even unpacked our suitcases yet. Mm -hmm. much less settled so we had to wear we five people wore the same uniform went through the receiving line and <laughs> made our nice our niceties and did what we were supposed to do and then scurried into the bathroom and gave it to the next girl what yep wow yep. <laughs> well and you know thinking about it now this is in 1967 so in 1967 right. we we could all wear the same uniform. If I look around my friends now, there's no way in God's green earth we could have managed it in this generation. Um, but we did. All five of us wore that uniform and went through and did what we had to do. And we got the little box check that said we were there. Wow. <clears throat> it's so interesting to hear this. I remember. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear the stories of um, the service members that went were in the military, you know, like prior to when I was in, because we, we didn't see that. That wasn't, they had upgraded by, by then, by the time I was in the service. And I had met um, a, a young woman. She was in the service a, a while back, maybe in the eighties, I want to say. And she was um, pregnant in the service and they didn't even have maternity uniforms back then when she was in. So they didn't know what to do with her or what to have her wear. Um, so it's just interesting to hear these stories. Um, yep. Yeah. Yep. What did she well, wear? I, she she actually had to wear civilian clothes. She wasn't allowed to wear uniforms because she couldn't fit into her uniform. So she was yeah serving with the men out there. I think she did. I want to say she was she was working on like artillery or something too. So it was like oh you know, a very involved job. And so her not being able to wear uniforms in her maternity wear, she said it was it was really. Um, she wanted to say it was it was kind of an awkward or embarrassing situation um, for her. Well, I'm sure it was, and it, it it made her stand out in ways that she didn't want to, I'm sure. Yeah. She wanted to be part of the unit and be doing what she was supposed to be doing, and that, that certainly didn't didn't hold true if she was not in a, in a uniform. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about it like that. That's yeah, it. so so you say you have three children. Were you, did you have children while you were in the service? Because you did a 21-year time and service that's amazing when i when i came in you could not have children 
um, unless you signed over custody of those children to someone else, your parents, you know, an aunt and uncle, whomever, um, then you could, you could have them, but you couldn't, they couldn't remain your responsibility at that point in time. Um, and that, that didn't change until the seventies. Um, and, and then you were, you were allowed to, to be married and to have children. Um, but it was, you know, it was, it evolved like many things do. Um, you know, we only, I think we had, we had to go on maternity leave at like seven months when you were barely pregnant and you were, you know, you were on maternity leave. Um, and the uniforms were evolving. Um, so it really depended on where you were assigned and, you know, what kind of unit you were in. If you were in the hospital, that was pretty benign. You could, you know, buy a larger uniform and make do and whatever. If you were in a field unit, different story. You know, fatigue was a challenge when there when there was no new uniform proposed at that time. So it's just it's like everything else. It takes time for things to kind of take root and then evolve and um, mature in terms of what where the rules going to be and what are you going to wear and how are you going to you know what is your job going to be and you know all the all those kinds of things. So it it just took time. How did you feel about um, having potentially somebody else have custody over your kids? Were you were you married or well, did you that, have a backup was, parent? For me, that was um, I, that was already history. By the time I um, was married and and had my first child, it was nineteen seventy seven, um, and uh, at that point you. You could be responsible for your own own uh, offspring. You had to have a plan. You had to have a written plan um, that identified what was going to happen if you were if you had to be mobilized. Um, and if you think about the number of times now that people are deployed, um, you know, compared to what we were. Um, I can't imagine how they would, how they manage. It must, it must be very, very difficult. But for us, it was, you know, we, when we went, we went for a year. Um, and so it was a much calmer process. Um, and my kids, you know, we, I didn't have children when I went to Vietnam. Um, in fact, I wasn't even married till I got back from Vietnam. So for me, the timing worked out in terms of my own situation, um, it fit with what was happening in, in the on, in the military side. Um, I know I know people who had their parents take responsibility for the kids. Uh, you know, I, I've seen all kinds of things that were done. It just depends on you know what your family structure is like and what your personal situation is like and and what you you know what's best for you at the time. Well, that's so scary because I right. I do remember um, there was a female in my ex's um, EOD team and she deployed and she asked us to um, keep her son for six months and I was uh. pregnant myself with our first. So um, that was, uh, I don't regret saying no because I really don't think that we could have handled it and I I, uh -huh. I want you know, only the best for that boy. Um, but at the same time, I really felt for her in that, mm -hmm. you know, she, she needed to figure something out. I mean, it was like mm -hmm. not optional. So I think, I think finally a family member or something stepped in. Yeah, Kim. Uh, it's, it's a big, it's a challenge. And, you know, it's not only what's going on in your family, but what's going on in, in the lives of, whoever you're thinking of asking like yeah your support is, system right your support system and, and is it you know is it a time when they can and be as supportive as you would like so it's um it's come a long way but um it's still it's a, it's a big responsibility because you know, when you when you think about being deployed to a you know to a country half half away around the world 
that's a big deal when you have a child and and um, that that child's you know young a little one um so i i was fortunate i felt like my career path happened to kind of be in sync with what the military was doing at the time um so i was i felt fortunate in that regard i didn't get in situations that were particularly um, difficult um, to handle. You know, it just seemed to work out. But um, yeah, I can tell you, I, I would spend a lot of time worrying about it in my, you know, what's going to be my next assignment? You know, where, mm. what kind of assignment do I want? How am I going to manage this? If, you know, if my, uh, with one child. And then of course, when there were two, that was a whole different thing. Um, and then there were three. Yeah. So, absolutely, that, yeah. You know, you you have to know your specialty and what the positions are that are available, so that you know what to ask for. You can't get what you need unless you know what to ask for. So, all That's of that advice. important. Um, you know, and and is it a, are you in a situation where you can go to graduate school? You know that takes away a lot of problems. Or it, are you in a situation where you're in a field unit, which creates lots of problems because you have the additional, you know, factor of going out to the field or uh, having formations at the, in the middle of the night or all, all kinds of things that can happen in different situations. And you kind of have to know what those are, are all about before you, you know, before you can think about what you want to try to get to make things work. And I think too that, that I, and I've not experienced this, but um, I hear people talk about children being brought to formation in the morning and things like that. I mean, you know, literally wrapped in a blanket with their thumb in their mouths. And that to me is not a solution. Wow. Uh, wow. I think Kim wanted to jump in there for a second. What do you want to well, say? Well, no, I wanted to go back because it's called a family care plan. And I know we were, you were kind of yes. speaking on that. Yes. Um, and I had, cause I had my daughter when I was active duty as well. And interestingly enough, I, when I had her, my, her father got deployment papers literally right before she was born. So maybe like a week or so before I actually had her, he was deployed uh -huh. to, I want to say he was deployed to Afghanistan at that time. Um, and so, yeah, so the family care plan was really essential because I was technically active duty and I was a medic. Um, and so if you didn't have that family care plan, so often other, you have to be chaptered out. I, I know some of the young mothers who didn't have, you know, somebody to help them, like, like you said, Erin, um, even a friend. And that's so hard for our mothers in the military because then having to leave your child after you just have a child with almost a stranger, like somebody who's not part of your, you know, biological family or whatnot, um, can be very stressful. It's an incredibly stressful time for mean? a new mother. What does that mean, chaptered out, for our listeners that are not military? Yeah, so if, so there's different t ways that you can leave military before your active duty assignment is over. So if you have to be chaptered out for, you know, mental health or for a disability, a physical disability, um, and there's, there's a family care plan chapter where you can be, you know, basically removed from your position at active duty. Um, I wouldn't say kicked out of the service, but kind of like, you know, you might have to stop being in the service, right? Because you don't have a good, solid family care plan. Wow. Wow. And so, Jean, you became a single mom for a while too, right? A lot of years. How, yep. many, how many years was it? Let's see. My daughter was two. Okay. Um, and and she's uh, the youngest, right? So when she's you, the youngest. Yeah. So when your well, youngest was two, I have to be careful about that because I retired when she was she was born in eighty one, and I retired in eighty six for other reasons that didn't have anything to do with her, but other reasons. Mm -hmm. So it was five years um, in the military with three children and on my own. Wow. And <clears throat> by that time, I was a chief nurse, so I had a little bit more control um, than I might have had uh, in other circumstances. Um, but 
it was, you know, it was dynamic, shall we say. <laughs> um, what do you, what it, do you mean by that? What do you mean dynamic? That it's, every day was a nightmare. <laughs> okay. You That's know, real. when you, when you have three children, you know what your life is like. It's, um, you know, it's on overdrive all the time. Um, and there's always the routine, but beyond the routine, there's always the ringer, you know, the unexpected, the, the, the thing that just knocks you off your feet. You know, you're, you have a schedule at work and you, at the very least, you do not want to, um, create a, a scenario where your, um, activities or your situation are noticed because they're different um and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing um you know you don't want to be obvious you want to fit in you want to you want your situation with your child to be um, manageable and not something that causes um discussion or causes a problem in any way because there are people who still don't support women with children being in the military um so i mean that would that that was my perspective was i didn't want to make i didn't want to be noticed in a negative way um i imagine exactly. a lot of women feel like that in the military and you're having to really spread yourself pretty thin by right. helping other people, um, managing your family, yep. you know, keeping everything in balance together. So that's incredible. You certainly were the first person I thought of when we came up with the idea to talk about resiliency. Um, so maybe you can kind of tell us like, what does resiliency mean to you and, and what's a time that you've, really shown your your ability to be resilient <laughs> uh well uh i retired from the military in 86 um one of my children had some needs that had to be uh had to be met specifically at that time and i didn't think that that um it could happen if i was i was supposed to be going to europe um and so as much as i didn't want to do it i decided it was time to retire Oh, wow. So and you made that I, decision for your kids. Well, and then, then the deal is, you've done that, and you, and you knew that system. Now you're going to go to the private sector, and you don't know that system. You just have to, you know, it's with a wing and a prayer. Um, and I had a lot of funny ideas about civilians, and I thought every chief nurse in, the, in this private sector had a parking place and a secretary and... Um, I mean, you know, it was ridiculous. None of that ever happened. Um, you know, it was just like every other job. Um, but there, there certainly were requirements and things that you had to do and places you had to be. And you, and you couldn't just say, well, I can't, sorry, I can't get there. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have, my babysitter's not here. I, I don't have whatever I need. I, I've told Aaron on occasion that I have had every possible childcare system known to man in my in my, the time that i worked whether it was the military or the private sector um i've had live-ins i've had um daycare I've, you know, I've just had i've had everything um and each worked well in in some ways and not not well in other ways again it you know it's the situation and the people and all of that that have to be kind of manipulated as much as anything else to um, figure out, is this system going to work for us in our environment? Mm -hmm. um, and most of the time, most of the time it did. Um, there were a couple times when there were some hiccups. Um, I still remember one time when I, I drove all the way from home to work and totally forgot to stop at daycare and, and take Katie in. <laughs> So I had to go back and, you know, place her where she was supposed to be. But, you know, you, you get distracted, you know, you get in your, your autopilot. 
Yeah, sometimes you're on autopilot and it, it, it skips a gear or two. Um, or then, you know, your kids get old enough to be manipulated back. And uh, one of my kids' favorite things was, but I never did anything for them. You know, if I, if I made a cake or if I made cookies or if I did anything, it was only because we had company coming or because they, they needed to take something to school. It was never just for them. You know, so that the guilt, boy, do they know how to turn on the guilt um, in terms of, of your working situation, whatever it is. Um, and you, you think that you're immune to that, you know, as a professional, you think that you've achieved enough professional uh, credit <laughs> that, you, that you can see through that. Well, trust me. So yeah, I know what you mean. Like my my five and seven year old, they don't give a shit about my degrees or um, my life experience. You know, they just want to uh -huh. challenge me on everything. That's pretty normal. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, do you, you you talked about um, with me the term workaround. Can you? I think that's that's one piece to resiliency that reminds me of yes. you. Can you talk about um, what is a workaround or how that term came up well i think when you're in any role you learn what the what the role is what's expected um and then there are going to be situations that don't quite get that and you have to figure out a workaround in my language um how are you going to make that happen in a way that can meet your needs and yet doesn't uh doesn't create a you know, some sort of negative um, event. Um, you were, I think you were relating it to like the hospital setting um, once when we were talking about it, right? Like sometimes there might be some sexism or um, some minimizing because you're, you're quote unquote, just a nurse, you know? And so then you have to kind of like, trust your gut or, or do instinctually, I don't know, you could explain it better than me, but find a workaround in that. Um, one of, I'm not sure if this is the same, if I'm on the same channel yet or not, Aaron, but the, the most direct um, issue in terms of workarounds with nurses, as I, as I remember it and, and, speak to it is that if you're working with a, a very a situation whether it be with a patient or a corpsman or um, a doc um, oftentimes um, there may be an issue of some kind um, you know it's that things are not working properly and, and you've got to get the job done anyway so you have to figure out the workaround you got to figure out a way to get all of these little parts to work together so that the job gets done, you know, and it doesn't turn the organization or the situation into a minefield. Um, and that takes a, it takes experience. It takes intuition is, is, is a, the word that I use a lot of times. And that is, you know, you, your gut mm -hmm. has to govern a lot of what you do. You know, you know what the job is and what the situation requires, but you need to have it go a little bit differently so that so that you can get your kid picked up at the right time that day, or you can um, get them to the doctor for a checkup or for uh, immunizations or whatever. It's whatever the variable is, or get your kid to a, a baseball tryout, a little league tryout, whatever the, the variable is. You have to be able to accommodate it, um, given that you have a full-time job and responsibilities very clearly identified to the military uh, or to wherever. It doesn't military doesn't really you know make it uh, make it unique. That's a a situation, a variable is the military, but private sector same thing. You know, I could end up with meetings after work or meetings in the evening or position meetings at certain times. So it, it just depends on what your what your structure is and how you can work around that. Um, and how do you 
do how do you develop a workaround that works um, and what works once may not work twice mm-hmm. um, that's a good point you finally find something especially with kids you finally find something that works and then and then they switch it up on you or you think it's a great idea and it turns out your kid thinks it's a terrible idea <laughs> um, I, think I think my daughter was in the fifth grade and um I thought she was old enough that I didn't have to pick her up for absolutely everything that, you know, that we could buy a, in our town, you could, it was a small town, you could buy a, a ticket for your taxi cab rides. And, you know, the same guy would pick her up and take her to, from school to ballet or wherever she was going that day and then pick her up and take her home. Well, I thought this was just the greatest idea since sliced bread. And it felt safe to me and, you know, I could control it and, um, all of that well she thought it was a terrible idea you know she felt like i'd abandoned her and she made sure everybody knew it (laughs) (laughs) my goodness um oh yeah Jean, i'm i'm really interested to hear more about your i mean if you'd like to share because i know i don't know how um traumatic that time of your service was but i'm really interested to hear more about the time you served in vietnam um, as a nurse, because you were a nurse during that time, correct? Yes. It was one year. I went to Vietnam virtually one year after I graduated from school. Wow, so um, you were I a new nurse. On the 29th of May in 1967, and then in, in 1968, I got to Vietnam on the 27th of May, so virtually a year after I graduated. Wow. Um, and did I, did I know everything? Of course. <laughs> I was, you know, I was a college graduate, so I thought I knew everything. Um, didn't take long to figure out that that was not quite exactly the way things were. Um, but you learn that by be, hopefully being smart enough to keep your mouth shut um, and not, you know, not sticking your neck out all the time and saying things that people could figure out quickly enough that you were ignorant and inexperienced so do you think that that had anything to do with your gender as well like being a woman in the military when there maybe wasn't as much support for that sort of thing um one of the unique things that i think about about serving in um vietnam and I don't, I don't even know if you can say the same thing for the current places people are deployed, but um, a unit was very much like a family. And people were very supportive of each other. Um, at least, and I'm, I suppose that that was different from unit to unit, but certainly in our unit, people were very supportive of each other. Um, and tried to, you know, tried to get to know people and... Um, uh, use those that knowledge of, of people's families and situations and whatever to allow for a different a different level of support. So, and all of that being very positive. That that's what I like to call unit cohesion. I speak a lot yeah. about this um, on my page in Visible Combat. I talk about how strong the family bonds can be in a service. Yes. Um, especially in a deployment. Um, I know in Vietnam, yeah. uh, you were a new nurse just going into Vietnam. Um, right. Were you scared when you went? I wasn't smart enough to be scared, and you know, I I I thought I knew everything, so I didn't I didn't have enough sense to be scared. The kind of facility I was in a in a hospital that was 400 beds, and that was in large measure was Vietnamese. It was a, a combat combat support hospital. But the majority of the, the population that we took care of was GIs, of course, soldiers, but also any of the Vietnamese people who were injured in any way because of the war were eligible for care. So if we, if we hurt somebody, then they were eligible to be cared for in our system. So we had children of all ages. We had babies, we had soldiers, we had mamasans, women who were, you know, who were from the community who got injured and came to us for care. Um, anytime that you had 
a Vietnamese person admitted uh, under a certain age, which I don't remember what it was, um, an adult, if, it was, if there was an adult available in their lives, that person would come with them so that there would be, if you had a, a 10 year old, you'd have a 10 year old plus his grandmother or his aunt or his father or whomever, somebody. Um, and that person would be there to help with their care. Um, and to, to be able to say that the child was safe. Um, so that worked pretty well, actually. Um, and the, the mamasans were very, very efficient. They took good care of the kids. They did a lot of the physical things, like making sure they got a shower and, you know, that they got their meals at the right times and all of that. Oh, and that again, that was different from unit to unit, and certainly depending on the on the individual's injury. You know, if they were an ICU patient and strapped up and tied into all kinds of uh, machines, then certainly their their daily schedules were a lot different than if they if they were um, you know, needing in, needing intervention and being in the hospital, but not necessarily needing a lot of different kinds of physical care so a mama son is that like um a woman in charge or how mama son is a generic term um it basically refers to a female um caregiver it could be someone who's related but it could also be someone who wasn't mm -hmm. related um but Oftentimes, it was a mother or an aunt or a grandmother, and all of them were called mama sons. So, uh, so that's so it's interesting to hear that because so you were over there for a whole year. You probably got immersed in their culture a little bit because you were working side by side with a lot yeah. of the individuals there, and also you were helping to heal some of the natives that lived there. Um, right. So how did you? How did you and the other um, nurses? How did you like a? Um, what is it called when you? Well, you know, Americans are. Unfortunately, for, and I say that with some candor, um, we're arrogant. You know, we thought our systems were better than anybody else's. So we just treated them like we would have treated our own children, our own, you know, uh, aunts and uncles or whatever, which meant we taught them how to take a shower every day and we taught them how to eat the foods that we ate. I think that's fascinating because uh, we haven't ever brought up the topic of children in war either and that's just uh, you know I think for some of us that don't have a strong military connection that's not something you see highlighted a lot in media and um, all of that but that is that yeah. is an actual reality of war so that yeah, and, and not just not just Vietnam it's a reality of any any war and that's one of the things that, that my colleagues and I talk about and when the president gets on one of his harangues about getting rid of um, pediatricians and OBs and whatever in the military is that um, you can get rid of them if you want, but you're still going to be taking care of those patients that are pregnant and or have children or children who have uh, clinical needs. Um, so it's, it's a significant component. Um, when you're in a wartime situation, mm -hmm. um, when we had, um, oh, we had conjoined twins where I was. What? Now, what? yeah, I'm so curious. I'm so curious to hear more about this. Where yeah. did you help? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I know. I see Erin's face right now. She's like, "What?" I'm interested yeah. to hear more about this. Yeah, it was fascinating. I mean, there, there were so many things that. You took them in stride. It, would, it was what it was. You know, if you had conjoined twins, you took care of conjoined twins. You know, if you um, if you had uh, a child that, that, you know, had some kind of weird thing wrong with them, then that's who you took care of. And um, um, it was just expected that whatever happens, you deal. You know, you deal with what you have to, and that's resiliency, uh, right? I, I was just, I was just gonna say thank you for pointing that out. That exactly is the topic. I mean, I, I love that. First of all, thank you so much for your service, um, especially over there. 
I don't think enough is, like you said, I don't think enough is talked about when it comes to how we support other people during the war, during different wars. Um, and then, yes, the pediatricians. So what, what was your specialty as a nurse? I don't think you mentioned that part. I was med, I was med surge um, for a long time. And then once I was, once I was no, when I was beyond that, then I was uh, in administration, in nursing administration. So um, I worked uh, mostly med surge and in Vietnam, we didn't have a pediatric unit. We, you know, the, the children were mixed in with, with the adults just because that's, we didn't have enough to do it otherwise. So children uh, saw some of the more extreme, well, I can't say more extreme, I don't know, but, but children saw grown-ups wounded? Oh, yes. Wow. Of course. That would be terrifying. Yeah. I can't even imagine a little kid seeing someone's leg blown off or... You know, well, like, remember, you know, they didn't come to us virgins. These kids had been out in the, you know, in in a country that had been at war for more than ten years. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. So this wasn't new for them. This war. This, so. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and who knows? I mean, the, the what they put up with and tolerated and and experienced in their villages was, um, you know, was plenty plenty scary enough. Um. But our, our, if we if we had a flaw, it was assuming that these children were like any other children, and that they, we should treat them like our own and teach them to do things like like we did. And that's what we did. And I've, I've oftentimes looked back and thought, how how naive were we that we just made those assumptions and and how did those, those children fare all these years later? I'd love to know. Mm. Um, did that turn out to be a reasonable thing, a good thing, uh, an unfair thing? That would uh, be interesting. And I'm actually, now my conspiracy theorist brain is wondering why hasn't anyone followed up on maybe yeah. it's information someone doesn't want us to know. But I, I love yeah. your tips, Gina, on resiliency. I heard you say, trust your gut. Make sure you get enough sleep. Look for workarounds and choose yep. your social support wisely. Does that sound yep. yes? Good. Yeah. Those are yeah. Those are all really yep. great tips. Yep. Go ahead. Trust your colleagues. You know you've, yes. you've got to you've got to trust those people that you're working with and and make sure that you um, have good working relationships because those are so important. Um, when you're in a, in a situation that's other than normal, go to work, take care of patients kind of thing. Um, yeah. And most of the time we had that. I mean, you know, once in a while we'd have, we'd have some dissonance, but for the most part, everybody got along and everybody did what they needed to do and we didn't have any yeah, that's good. You you situations. do have to trust them like family and know that they have your back, especially in these yep. life or death situations. Yep. Um, yep. So that's great. I just want to share really quick a little bit about um, how Jean and I know each other. Uh, we're both familiar with a program called Give an Hour, and that program um, asks for people of, I think, of all different types of professions, actually, to... Um, donate an hour of their week to a military member or their family. And so it's all completely free, all completely confidential. Um, nothing gets written down. No notes are being um, taken. No diagnosis is being made. And so you're just actually checking in on our service members and seeing how they're doing. And so it's kind of, I guess it's kind of like a buddy system. So I think it's been, um, and of course, we have gotten all the proper consents and everything for mm -hmm. um, Jean to share her her story and her time with us. But uh, we've we've been uh, talking for about I think five years now. Jean, is that right? It's been a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, she's certainly amazing, and I'm so excited that oh we got to document you know some of these experiences because. It just, 
it just melts my heart to know that, you know, we can actually hear this and learn from it and also like know how far we've come in the progress that we want to see being made. Right. Right. Absolutely. And thank you so much. Well, as I said, I have no regrets. I, I loved my time on active duty. I love this. There's no one more grateful than a, a soldier. Um, they, it doesn't matter what rank they are. It doesn't matter where they are. It doesn't matter what branch or service. They are so grateful to be cared for and to get a hot meal and a clean bed to sleep in that um, it's pretty remarkable. And, you know, it, it, nobody feels neglected when you're taking care of soldiers. You know, they will, yes, ma'am, you to death. Uh, uh, they're, just, they're just wonderful, wonderful guys to take care of. So well, that's certainly why we, you know, wanted to get into this specific type of podcast too, is just mm-hmm. giving back to our heroes, mm-hmm. our sheroes and our heroes. So and they are worth it. Yeah, they are. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so if any of our listeners have other sheroes or heroes to nominate, uh, feel free to find us on Facebook and Instagram at Shiro Hotline. We'd love to hear your stories. And heck, maybe we'll even interview some of you too. Absolutely. We love this. This has been amazing so far, this journey. Um, just okay. hearing the stories. Yes. All right. So thank you guys for listening. We will be back uh, in just a couple of weeks with a new episode. And I just want to throw it out there. Tell your friends, um, tell your family, let anyone in your life know that this resource is available, that we are creating this podcast. And um, we're only going to get better and better um, at our setup and our sound quality And if we do get big enough with enough followers, then we can actually start affording to drop episodes maybe weekly. So if you like this, if you love it, then thank you. Send us a little shout out and share it with your friends. Absolutely. And don't feel afraid to leave us a review if you like our content. Um, It makes it easier for people to see us and to be able to access it. So thank you very much. Yes. Thank you, Jean. Good plan. Thank you for the invitation. I enjoyed it.